Hello and welcome to another episode of Cameras or Whatever, the podcast for the working photographer. I'm Tyler Stallman. And I'm Cameron Whitman. Hey, Cameron. Hi. So we are going to try to return to our original format a little this week and actually pick a topic for you. Great. Let's do it. And try to dissect it in detail. And uh, what we thought we'd talk about a bit is maybe something for more um, entry-level working photographers. So somebody that's just starting out getting working. Um, But even just, I think it's a question that anybody that is currently a professional has to answer for their friends. And that's just, how do you get started? What kind of camera kit is a good way to start off your business or just start shooting your hobby or like where is the right place to start? Yeah. It's like, are you taking it from a hobby to a business or are you just starting out? Yeah. And there's different choices to make um, in all those places, but let's assume that this is somebody's first step that they have nothing, right? That they're not using an existing lens collection or have some history with one brand or another, um, where do people get started? And um, for reference, myself right now, I'm actually doing a little brand consulting with a friend that is starting to launch a a, a general brand, like a lifestyle brand, where she's going to need to be posting her own photography. And um, I spent a long time talking to her about some of these problems, like how do you step up the quality of what you're shooting and posting online without investing a ton of money? Because well, I don't think you have to. I think you go really far with relatively little money. It's easy for me to say that when people ask a lot of the time, I want to say like, look, the minimum lens is going to cost you $1,000 because I wouldn't spend less than $1,000 on many lenses. There, there are very few cheap lenses that are worthwhile. Right. But that's not necessarily the most useful advice because investing $1,000 in a lens before you really know which lens you need to use... Um, is risky, you know. Yeah, you probably want to start somewhere a little lower down the uh, the price totem pole, and uh, yeah, d- d- get used to it first, get comfortable with it, and decide where you're going to go with it. So, uh, I kind of broke this down into the idea of, that we're helping people that are either going to be shooting landscapes, mm-hmm. uh, cityscapes, scenery, stuff like that. People that want to shoot things like portraits or in-studio stuff, I think that could you know include food or products, but uh, you know things in a controlled environment, mm-hmm. and then event photography. Right. So things are totally uncontrolled, and you're going to be running around. I'm going to let you start. <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> well, let's start with events because that's something that I do a lot, and so. For what I have in my bag right now is uh, I shoot with a Nikon DF for several reasons. One is that it's it's quick, it's light, um, it's easy for me to use, and it also elicits a positive response out of people when they see it because it looks super cool. Yeah, and I have a, a you know a cool leather case for it, and people are all the time just saying like how nice it looks. They don't even care what it is; they're just like, yeah, that's neat. And uh, you know, believe it or not, I mean that might sound really trivial to some people, but in this instance, it actually helps quite a lot to break the ice in some cases, or just make people feel a little less intimidated by what you're running around with. Well, so what are the technical attributes of it that make it useful to you? Like what um, you know, if you were shopping for this camera again, what about the way that it works compels you to to buying it? 
Well, A1 is that it has incredible low light performance. That is the most important feature. Right. Of this yeah. Camera. Yeah. It'd be hard to really shoot events well and not be able to perform in low light. Yeah. The one downside is that it only has 31 focus points instead of, gosh, I can't remember what the, what the other one, like the, D, the, the D4 has, mm-hmm. but it's, it's almost twice that. Right. So the, uh, the amount of, of room that you can use autofocus is, is less. And there are moments where that actually does suck and you have to, um, mm-hmm. I have to work mm-hmm. around that. And I notice it later on in, in the pictures, but th- that's kind of beside the point. I think that, you know, the reason I use it is, is highly personal and I'll, we'll get into, into that somewhat. But I think that what we need to do is figure out what the recommendations are. Well, I think another really important aspect, which I'm, like, I don't know how the DF performs, but is focusing in low light as well. Yeah. There was a time when, I think, let's say the 5D Mark II, Mm-hmm. In, in the Canon lineup uh, was a time that made a, it made a huge jump in low light performance. It was very, very good for its time, but the focus in low light was still terrible. You would often have to flip over to manual or you'd need to have a, a flash mounted that would give you a focus lamp. And that jump to higher quality autofocus in the 5D Mark III in low light, that was a huge necessity, really. I mean, it, it that's part of what makes low light photography work. And there are still current cameras like, um, well, okay, I, I haven't, haven't used all the mirrorless ones, but I know some of the mirrorless perform better and worse in low light with their autofocus, even though their high ISOs look really great. Yeah. And that's really, let's face it, that's just as important in event work as having something that performs or that has a, a technically nice image in low light. Um, being able to autofocus in these situations, I mean, you have to, it has to be fast and flawless. Because mm-hmm. the thing is that in low light, you're in the same position as the autofocus that you can't just flip over to manual and be able to see everything clearly. It's still pretty dark. So it's also harder for you to focus manually. So even if you're good at focusing manually in bright light, you're also going to be at a disadvantage. So it's really a time that you want the camera to be able to do better than you can. Right. So, yeah, that's obviously another huge factor. But I think that the the most important thing is like don't get carried away. Like if you're going to be shooting primarily events and not just kind of general all around things, don't go crazy with your megapixels because on the turnaround side, you're going to really regret that. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and that's probably for me. It's it's one of the the equal points of importance. Um, I don't like having major size files for events because I shoot a lot of stuff. I want to make sure that I get all the right moments and it takes forever. Even at 16 megapixels, it takes a really long time to... If you could arbitrarily choose your megapixel count for mm-hmm. an event camera, like you could just make up the number, what would you set the number at? Um, you know, I like 16 because it gives me room to crop. Mm-hmm. But I think that just in general, I'd say 12 is plenty. Yeah, I, I actually I think 16 would be great cuz right now I'm shooting over 20 on the 5D3 and it's definitely too much. But I feel like 12 might not be enough cropping room for a lot of things, especially like a wedding if you're delivering something that may need to be printed large and right. you just have no extra room at all. Yeah, that's a consideration, but I I think that with weddings it's uh, mostly the same but a little bit different. Like with yeah. weddings I might want a 24 megapixel. Yeah, and if I was Doing a wedding with well cameras that um, you know I'm choosing out of a bucket, I would still want more megapixels for things like the portraits when you're having like a sit down portrait session with the couple. 
Yeah. And yeah, choosing photos that may end up being really large in the end, I would rather have something big. But then the whole rest of the night, it can get a lot smaller. Yeah, so now we're leaning into the two-camera zone, which is not necessarily a, a starter <laughs> start kit. kit. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, um, well you so, could, I mean, you could get two Rebels for the cost of one 5D. But. Oh, yeah, that's, that's true. But then you're going to miss out on all those awesome things like low-light performance. Yeah, of course. But for my general kit for events is, you know, I have the DF, and then I use the Nikon 24-70 to 70 fixed 2.8, and then also the 70-200 to 200 fixed 2.8. Mm-hmm. Um, some, there are a lot of occasions where I don't even need the 70 to 200. Um, but I'd say that probably 65 to 75% I, need, I do need it. So I'm really happy that I have it because there's nothing that comes close to the quality of that lens. It's right. amazing. Yeah. Um, but if you're just starting out, that's a lot of money. I mean, yeah. it's only three pieces. And uh, you know, we haven't even talked about a speed light yet. Every single piece is very expensive in that kit. That's right. Um, and you're going to need a, uh, a speed light as well. So um, if I was just starting out, the way that I would go, I would most likely get um, a crop sensor if, just because it's going to save you a lot of money. And like if you're just starting out, it, it did me a lot of good for a lot of years. Just having like I used a Nikon D300 and uh, it, got, it got the job done. I mean, it was nowhere near as nice in low light. And you know, obviously, the the quality of my work took major major leaps when I went up to the D seven hundred. But um, yeah, I think that these days, like a crop sensor can actually do a lot more heavy lifting than they did back when I was shooting them. So I would say that, like you know, the the D seventy two hundred would probably be a really good starting point for somebody. Um, mm-hmm. It's going to have fairly good low light capabilities. It's going to focus pretty well. Uh, I believe it has more focus points than the DF. I sh- we should probably look that up. But yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely it's it's a capable body. It's small and it handles very nicely. Um, that would be a great way to start. But for the lenses, I would say, you know, and it's weird to recommend this because I would never buy this. But I see that the usefulness of it is a, uh, a twenty-four to one twenty. Twenty-four to one twenty. What is that? F four. What's the? Um, you know, I'm I'm looking to make sure that they don't make several different ones because yeah, that's the f4. I would anytime you're buying a zoom lens, if you can buy a a constant aperture, that's probably my <laughs> number one recommendation for mm-hmm. buying a zoom lens. Um, as soon as you have a variable aperture, like you're really losing on your quality. Yeah, and especially if it gets down to like five point six or you know, some of them get pretty dark at the long end. Yeah, totally. So yeah, the one that, that is the recommended one would be the twenty four to one twenty f four G, and that's the it's a VR as well. So this is going to give you plenty of range for just about anything. So you're going to have twenty four for all the wide stuff, and I, I generally in most of my event work I shoot between twenty four and fifty ninety percent of the time, and then for uh, the the more candid stuff, that's when I usually try to step out step back. And uh, use the zoom length, and I think mm-hmm. that 120 is plenty to get you started. Um, I think that later down the road, you might want to to ditch this lens altogether and get split it out and get the 24 to 70 and the 70 to 200. Yeah, that kit, that lens doesn't to me doesn't seem like it would fit great in a larger kit, but it right. could be a good place to start with just the one. Yes, and I mean, if you were going to start with two bodies, let's say that you were going to get. You know, you were going to get like the seventy-two, the D seventy-two hundred for your first camera, 
and you were going to put the 24 to 120 on that, then I might also, like, if you were going to invest in a second camera just for insurance, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is also highly recommended yeah, if you can afford idea. it, yeah. Um, then I'd probably get a little lesser body, maybe the, the D5300, mm-hmm. just because it's going to, it's quite a lot cheaper. Like, right. it's actually sh- surprisingly cheaper. It's still 24 megapixels, still performs pretty well. It's just missing some of the, the more key features that you might want. But as a second body, like I would just get that with the uh, 50 millimeter 1.8 just to have for those kind of uh, the more intimate shots that you might want to get with the details and stuff like that would be awesome. So that would be what I would recommend for a basic. Well, and I think I'm going to jump in and say that a 50 millimeter 1.8 can probably be included in any recommendation of any kit to anyone. On a crop sensor, it's going to be a little longer than is ideal. It really is the most useful at 50 millimeters, I think. Once it gets cropped to 80, I've definitely heard, especially new photographers, complain that it's too close, uh, which, you know, that that is very useful, but it is a bit too long when you're getting started. Like it's not, it's not nearly as versatile, but it is so affordable and it lets you get into fast apertures and you should start with a 50. Yeah, and also those um, those 51.8s, I, I think it's probably similar with Canon and Nikon. Everything is pretty much the same, right? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Different coating. I assume so. I'd, yeah, I always I, feel I'm, like I'm it's, never going to put the effort into testing. No. <laughs> but I think that the uh, it does feel a little bit long. Um, but the other thing about those lenses is that they have a relatively close focus capability. Yeah, right. um, without being a, a an actual macro lens, and so it just it, they happen to be just incredibly versatile, and they're practically weightless. They're plastic with really great optics, so you you aren't you aren't even going to really notice it when it's in your bag, right? So I I love that about those. Well, I'm going to do my selections for the events thing. I mean, I, I think you broke down the reasons for a lot of it, but on the Canon side, I'm going to recommend the 7D. Mark II. I haven't actually used it myself. I've heard from friends that have, though, and there's great things to say about it. I had the 7D Mark I, and I had it at the same time as the 5D and would shoot them together, and that was a really perfect combination. The 7D brings things like faster shooting at a lower price and is, I mean, really great. There's When I have a 7D and a 5D in my hand, there is always something I slightly prefer about the, the 7D. It, it um it's it it is more of an event camera like it's meant to perform quicker and like be a better selection for sports the autofocus mm-hmm. uh it works in live view which the 5D doesn't it's it's also at a different point in the upgrade cycle than the 5Ds are so it always has well not always but it typically has a few of the newer things like i find it it has small features are one step ahead of the 5D at least right now they are so um 5D Mark II or 7D Mark II. And then uh, also the 6D is also a great option to get into full frame at still a reasonable price. You take a step back, like it's funny, there are definitely trade offs between the 7D II and the 6D. And it's not completely obvious which one's going to be right for you. You should probably look at each one and decide which specs make the most sense. I think for event photography, though, I'm going to go with the 7D as my choice. And then my kit for events, uh, well, my kit for everything involves the 5D Mark III. And I actually don't have a 24 to 70 2.8, even though 
I've used it a lot. I've rented it. I've borrowed it from friends. I've, I know how great they are, and I just haven't put the money into it because the new ones are very expensive from Canon. And honestly, I usually get by, well, I just get by with the kit that I have. So I'll usually bring a 50 millimeter 1.4 or a 24 to 105 4.0 with a speed light. Like if mm-hmm. I know I'm using flash all night, like the, the other night uh, we were shooting a dinner event at a restaurant that is candlelit. Like this is a dark room mm-hmm. and there's no point in trying to get natural light out of it. I don't need 2.8 at all. So shooting the whole night at f4 with my speed light bouncing around the room, it was great. I, I would have been making a small sacrifice shooting at 2.8 actually because the, the extra focus was helpful in, in that situation. 4.0 was the right aperture right. and that worked really well, but you need the flash to complement that. So uh, 24 to 105 with a flash can be a great combination, relatively cheap. A 24 to 105 is much cheaper than the 24 to 70. Um, the trade-off is you don't get 2.8. So wait, it's a 24 to 105 and not a 120? Yeah. So, oh, so, there's, so there's a Canon Nikon difference. Yeah. <laughs> but that's that's like the typical higher-end kit lens for Canon. So that'll come bundled with a lot of cameras. It's uh, you know around $1,000, I think a little bit more most of the time. Okay. But a really good investment. It's It's been my default studio lens for like 10 years, like since oh. it came out, uh, because the 105 reach is a little more useful than the uh, 70. Um, it's just like a range that's very helpful. Usually I'll be shooting it anywhere from 50 to 105. And it's, you know, very sharp, very capable. And uh, it's not as sexy as the 24 to 70, but it is much more affordable and versatile in other ways. So, um, but if there's natural light, so a, a wedding, um, I might have that in my bag, but more so I would use the 50 millimeter 1.4 and the 70 to 200. And the, w- the way that I shoot weddings is with my wife. So she has one of the cameras and I have the other. And usually we'll just trade the whole camera. Like we'll just pass the cameras off between each other. So one person always has the faster, slightly wider lens. The other person has the longer lens. And uh, we just kind of pass them back and forth as we need them. I, I love that. I wish I could do that. Uh, it, <laughs> it, it's really great shooting with a partner at, at events that can make things a lot easier or especially safer like you're not as yeah. worried about missing you're not gonna moments. miss things right yeah. and also i think that it's it's just playing to each other's strengths i guess yeah so it's, somebody does this and somebody else does that so yeah yep for sure and i love that now moving on to let's move into the the studio and by studio of course i mean you know home studio or just indoors uh, any environment that you're able to control a little bit mm-hmm. and what uh what do you start with there? What's the most important thing in your bag when you're shooting in studio? That one's, I think that one's complicated for me because I'm not sure that I, I know how to express what works as a starter for the studio. Right. I don't view the studio as being a, a starter situation, even though everybody has to go through that, that phase. So I think that it's probably a similar thing. You just use the camera that you have and start to figure it out from there and then you start to hone in on where you're finding your problems and then move up from there. But if I was going to, like the the lens that I highly recommend owning if you're a studio photographer is, um, and an, you're a Nikon shooter, would have to be the uh, the 105 2.8 ma- macro lens. Hmm. Um, You've done that. Yeah, just all around. It's it's so versatile. You can use it for close-up. You can do product or macro photography. You can do food photography with it. You can do portraits uh, you can do close-up portraits. <laughs> it's funny. I've never owned a macro lens and have 
barely ever shot with them. I, I just don't need it. I mean, what I was going to say is the equivalent that I do have is the Canon 120 2.0, mm-hmm. but, it, but it's not macro. It's just a very nice long lens. Hmm. Um, but there is a 100 millimeter macro that is probably very similar and probably great, but um, I've never shot with it, so maybe I should. They are very similar. Um, I, I, I have never shot with it either, but comparing results, you know, there's no question that, that they're in league. You know, <laughs> they're neck and neck. And so that, that's just an incredibly versatile lens that's, that's really wonderful for using in the studio. Um, some of the things about shooting in the studio that, that, for me at least, that really bug me is that there are moments when I can use a 50 and really enjoy it, but I have to be a certain distance because the 50 starts to introduce a level of distortion that I really don't like to see in um, studio portrait work and or product work or anything else. Like I'm, I'm just kind of finicky about distortion. Well, it really depends on your composition. I mean, if you, if by portrait we mean a close-up headshot, mm-hmm. which I think a lot of people use the word portrait in different ways, yeah, um, and to mean very different things. But there is definitely such thing as a wider angle portrait that a fifty is right. Well, that's the what I meant by, lens for, right? by the distance to the subject, yeah. because I think that if you're doing a, um, you know, a, a half body shot. You know, a fifty is is amazing. It's great if you if you have enough studio room. Like it's brilliant. It's yeah. Well, play. and there's there's context that like a thirty five can also be a very nice three quarters kind of thing. Like if you are uh, including some of the environment, right? Mm-hmm. If you're showing some of the room that the person is in, um, you you can definitely go wider to a fifty or thirty five, and uh, especially if it's horizontal. I think in a past episode I was talking about the difference between vertical and horizontal affecting your lens length mm-hmm. selection. And this is a, a great example of it. If you're shooting a room and you want to include the room, a, a wider lens works great for horizontal, but will cause problems for vertical or also just not give you an advantage. Like a 35 will start to show the ceiling and the floor mm-hmm. in kind of a useless way, probably, compared to if it's showing it in, the, in width, in horizontal width, it can become a lot more useful. Right, and also there's the nasty distortion that comes with it. So if you're taking a portrait vertically and you have the, the subject's head too close to the, either the bottom or the top of the frame, yeah. depending on how you're holding your camera at what uh, angle of incidence, like that's, you, know, you start to get like some misshapen heads and stuff with the 35. And that's another thing that just, uh, you know, like when you're taking portraits like that, like that's not something that I want to see. Personally. A tip I wish I had heard earlier in my career was just like, if you're shooting a person with a wide angle lens, you definitely can. You can shoot people with fish eyes and make it look good, mm-hmm. but they need to be in the center of the frame. Yeah, right in dead center. Yeah, they can't be <laughs> anywhere near the edges. And that goes for everything up to like a 50. In a 50, like they can start getting closer to the edges. But um, if it's going to be really a portrait where they, the person takes up most of the frame, you should be at 85 or more typically. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, well, and here I'm going to get even more specific. That's a vertical thing. So if you are shooting, say, a 35 millimeter portrait and it is horizontal, the person's head can be right near the top because there is no distortion. I hope I'm describing this in enough detail to make sense. But a horizontal, a wide image, their head is near the top. That isn't getting near the part of the lens that distorts because the sensor is cropping it, right? Mm-hmm. The distortion is happening on the left and the right of a wide image. Now, if you turn that into a vertical image, it's the top and the bottom that become distorted. 
So then the person's head really needs to be in the center. If it gets near the top, that's when it gets pulled upwards. Wow, that's some great advice. Yeah. So hope that helps. Uh, also, if you shoot, so you can kind of test this for yourself shooting in square on an iPhone. I think if people always shot in square mode, they would not find themselves accidentally getting weird distorted heads. But if you're shooting full frame, which you know is what we usually do, mm-hmm. um, it's a lot easier to use an iPhone to get like a really awkward looking alien head. But yeah, it keeps them in the middle and you won't have that problem. Right. Where what were we talking about? <laughs> I was still talking about the the one hundred the one oh five for the studio and yes. why I like it. And okay, so like you just basically went into a lot of detail about the reasons why I like to shoot with the one oh five. Just because it as long as you have the distance to be able to get away from everything, like you're just gonna you're not gonna have to, to worry about the same kind of distortion problems. And having straight lines and stuff like that, it's just, it's a nearly flawless length for that kind of stuff. And I, that's why I just, I really love it. I don't know if it's the best thing to start with though, but I mean, if you're shooting in a studio, what is the best thing? I think it's. Well, I think a common recommendation would be an 85. Hmm. I, I mean, if you Google portrait lens, that's, I bet what most of the results will suggest. Not that you need to use it all the time. I mean, I, I don't, but. Uh, but yeah, yeah, this so depends what you're shooting because, again, if you're, it depends if you're shooting a lot of headshots or a lot of three quarters or full length. Um, that will affect this a lot. I think a general rule, though, about your studio selection is that, like, I think the camera matters less than everything else. Mm-hmm. In a controlled environment, you can be using basically whatever you want because you can put it on a tripod. Your lens doesn't have to be fast. You can, uh, you know, if you have a longer lens like that, 105, you can be shooting at 4.0 or even 5.6 and probably still get, you know, a little bit of blur. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, I think you have a lot more options in studio. You don't need to worry as much. It more comes to having lighting solutions, meaning either having great window light, hopefully. Mm -hmm. That's the easiest, best solution is some large windows. And of course, if you don't, then... There, there's started to be a lot of really useful fluorescent softboxes that are very cheap. Um, this is what I recommended to my friend who that I was mentioning, trying to get her set up. Is uh, she's going to be ordering one from B and H? I think it's about two hundred bucks. It's just a bank of very powerful fluorescent bulbs with a softbox, and I've seen these used. And you know, they're not the highest quality of light, but they are very competent. They are very soft and easy, so easy to set up. You can get a beautiful portrait out of them with virtually no effort and very little money. You could still use your iPhone with it. You don't have to understand shutter speeds and flashes and stuff. Like You can just get started. And uh, I I think it's a great place to start. I mean, if you're getting into strobes, definitely check out Alien Bees, but you don't need to start there if if you're not comfortable. Definitely not. So So one of the things about the 85s that I feel maybe I'm crazy. I don't know. Maybe this is just my in- interpretation of it. Is that I feel like the minimal minimum focus distance was always a problem working in a studio. Mm-hmm. Um, not really necessarily a problem. It just depends on how tight you want to get your shot. Right. I've never run into that. Like I've never thought about it. So I'm guessing with my specific lens selection, it's not a problem. Mm-hmm. But um, I just haven't. I haven't had that as a concern, but I'll strongly recommend the Canon 80 millimeter, or wait, sorry, 85 millimeter 1.8. 
because there is also the 1.2, which a lot of people really lust after. It's very large and beautiful and expensive, but it is overpriced in my opinion. It is absolutely not worth the investment. It doesn't look good enough to cost that much. And the 1.8 looks amazing. Like it looks very, very good. It is much more recently priced. It's very small. Mm-hmm. And um, I've really felt like that lens was a worthwhile investment. It's easy to put in a bag. Uh, I, I just would strongly recommend it over the 1.2, even though everybody wants the 1.2. <laughs> yes. So, well, uh, there's, you know, it, this is a point of cash and logic, right? Mm-hmm, <laughs> when you're, mm-hmm. you're talking about needing a 1.2 versus a 1.4, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And you'll end up shooting at 1.2 way less often than you think you are. You, the first week, yeah, everything's going to be 1.2, but nothing will be in focus. And then you're <laughs> exactly. going to start stopping it down to 1.4 or 1.8. And you'll be like, why did I spend extra money for this? <laughs> totally. I, I, most of my lenses are at 2.8 most of the time or yeah. more stop down. Like, I'll, I have so much at 4.0 this year. Like I've been getting more and more conservative with my bokeh because I just don't feel like it makes a photo. No, it's nice, but it can be nice, but it also has to be intentionally nice. It has to be a part of how you conceive the shot. Yeah. If you're just relying on it as a crutch, it starts to look stupid in my opinion. I mean, yeah, maybe not yeah, stupid, but just lazy. Yeah. And yep. uh, it's like a tell, right? Like you can just tell when somebody has decided that now I'm just relaying on a fast lens instead mm-hmm. of trying to figure out how to make this more creative. You know, I think that that's part of the challenge. That's part of the figuring out what the mystery is with making a photograph is figuring out how to use all the information in the scene, you know, not just to make it obsolete. Yeah, I just thought, okay, let's add to this. Let's say beginner kits and also say ultimate kits. I mean, maybe we want to come back and do a whole episode on ultimate kits. <laughs> but I want to add in that if I were spending whatever amount of money on a studio kit, that the Pentax 645Z is amazing. And uh, I've talked about it on the show previously, but like, yeah. it's a wonderful camera to work with. It is um, under $10,000, which is very affordable for a medium format. It's much, much less than Hasselblad. And the quality is very similar. It's the same sensor. Yeah, beautiful camera. I, I highly recommend checking one out. Yeah, I don't know if I could come up with anything that's more desirable. Yeah. Know? Like I've seen a, a lot of, I don't know, I think that like just looking at camera gear for so long, you see all the Hasselblad, the, the, the what is it, the HD3? Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. I forget. <laughs> I, I don't look at it much anymore because... I, I don't either. Yeah. As the Pentax and, came out, I didn't find the Hasselblads as lustworthy. Not at all, and that's what I'm. That's my point. Is that I think that um, I don't know. Maybe it's just it, what I've seen people do with them. I've been far less impressed with the work that I've seen come from people who use the Hasselblad mm-hmm. HD3s or whatever they are in the studio versus uh, the Pentax system. I'd also say the studio is a place that it starts to make a bit more sense to have things like we didn't talk much about mirrorless. We kind of dismissed it in the previous, but the Sony a seven R two, um, this is where it starts to become really great. Uh, I like, I would love it for studio and landscape, which will be our next, uh, because the, the speed and responsiveness, ease of use of menus, those things aren't great. I, I don't want to use that camera when there's a ton of pressure going on. Mm-hmm. But if you're able to control the situation and slow down a little bit, the quality is incredible, and it will be a really wonderful 
thing to use as long as there's not too much pressure going on. Uh, so that's the, that's the first step that I actually think it's very worthwhile looking at. So I mean, we're talking about Canon and Nikon because that's what we're very comfortable with. But Sony is making a mark. They are taking over a lot of markets, and uh, a, a studio photographer being able to shoot, you know, forty megapixels or, or whatever it is on these things. Uh, you know, these it, it's a very viable option mm-hmm. at For this sure. point. For sure. Right. Shall we move along to the final one? Yeah. Uh, let's pick up from the A7R Mark II into the landscape uh, section. Because that, I mean, this is when you want the megapixels, typically. Like, you're not in any rush. you probably got a tripod. Mm-hmm. You are not going to shoot nearly as many photos. That's actually a, a great reason to use more megapixels. It's not going to take up as much hard drive space. That's exactly when you should be. <laughs> yeah. So, and uh, by landscape, I do mean urban photography and, like, uh, street photography as well. Um, I think that all is going to fall into the same area here. I disagree. Uh, well, I mean, I was just going to clump it together so we only have three categories instead of four. But <laughs> well, okay. But, but but yes, I mean, they do have they do have different requirements. Certainly, mm-hmm. I I just think the same personality, the same. I'm guessing that the same kind of person might wander around a city or a uh, mountain as opposed to approaching people and asking them to sit down in their home for a portrait. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> um, but okay, so that's my, fair. Yeah, the, the start of my pick is going to be the A7R2. It is so amazing. It is it is quite expensive. Um, you can get away with less, but uh, it it's a pretty great camera. Uh, a lot, like three thousand. Well, so it's comparable to. Yeah, yeah, it's more like a like a five D Mark III. But if you're looking at the Canons, you'd be looking at the five D. Oh, God, RS SR. What's it called? Five. There's S- like an S and an R, isn't there? There's two of them, aren't there? Yeah, but I don't care about them very much. So okay, yeah, five DS and five DR. That's how it works. Yeah, I'm with um, you on the not caring. Yeah, they're just not <laughs> something I need at all. Like this is not meant for me. This is meant for landscape type photographers, people that are just all about resolution. And you know what? From everything I've seen, they're great. Like the quality, I've seen big prints from them and it's amazing. It's beautiful. Does it compare to the uh, 645Z though? Uh, you know what? In depend, It can compare for sure, depending on what the photo is of. If it's not pushing the limits of the camera, I think you might be hard pressed to tell in many circumstances. Hmm. I think the reasons for the Z are more the reasons that you would want a medium format. You know, the the way that depth of field behaves and the way that lens compression behaves, uh, you get some more dynamic range. The noise, the per- potential for noise performance in the 645 is uh, a little better because there are just more pixels to distribute the noise across. If you're shooting in the best possible photo to come out of each camera would be definitely better out of the Pentax or any medium format. But in a kind of just more average photo where lighting is optimal, you're not looking for depth field, things like that, then they will both look pretty similar. Okay. But yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm jumping right to expensive kits. If you're, I don't know, uh, spending less, like you can get a Rebel and get pretty nice results. All of the modern cameras look pretty great if you're not concerned about huge prints. If, if megapixels aren't the concern, then really any any camera body can kind of do it for you because um, you can probably increase your shutter length a little bit if you're putting it on a tripod. 
Um, you, you may not need that really quick focused response. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, as long as it's for web, then, then pretty much anything is going to do you well. It's more about your lens selection in the end, I think. But I'm talking a lot. What do you think? <laughs> um, no, honestly, I really think it depends on, on the angle that you're trying to get with your landscape work. Because to be completely honest, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, is that you know I see quite a lot of landscape work done on iPhones that is pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. For the context of a phone, you know, to be viewed on a phone, it's perfect. Yeah. And so... Uh, when I think of landscape, I tend to think of you know mountain ranges and places that are not just stepping outside of the car or not even leaving the car. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I really like the idea of being able to to have something that doesn't weigh me down to the horrible degree that most of my kits would. And so you know I think that it really depends on what you're going for. Um, so when people ask me, well, what kind of camera do you recommend? I my first answer is usually, do you have an iPhone? And if you do, then why isn't that working for you? <laughs> right. What more do you need? Right. Because let's just be honest. I think that we could probably all agree. Most people would probably agree that the iPhone, the current state of the iPhone technology for cameras is well and, and far above anything that we were ever used to from point and shoots, from just your normal consumer point and shoot. Absolutely. When you get down to the absolute 100% pixels, you could probably make some arguments there, but in terms of uh, just overall look and and quality of colors and all these things, like uh, the iPhone blows most of those things away in almost every case. And there's also all these apps that make it super convenient. So I think that really the starting place for me would be talking yourself out of why do you need more? You know, what is it that you think that you need from this system that that's going to offer you? Like if you're be honest with yourself, are you in shape? <laughs> yeah. How much can you carry? Because these things are real considerations. When you have a backpack and you know it weighs fifty pounds full of camera gear, and that could be conservative. I mean, what if you're carrying a hundred pounds worth of packing gear, not just your cameras, but also anything else that you might need? Um, you know, you just have to be honest with yourself about how far you want to take this. But um, in terms of getting started, I would say, yeah, use your phone once you get to a point where you start to recognize that you're getting some stuff that's interesting or you're getting some attention from from your friends on Instagram or, or whatever it is that, that makes you feel that you need to take the next step. Um, until you've reached that point, I wouldn't go beyond it. Honestly, I don't think that there's any reason to, to waste your money. Well, I, I think you raise very good points, and I'm going to circle back the devil advocation onto you mm-hmm. that... Um, it really ends up depending on what your final format is. I think I was hinting at that when I started talking, but that is it important for you to print these? Because there are more landscape photographers that enjoy making prints than other types of photographers. I mean, I'm totally generalizing, but of the the people that I've talked to, like landscape photographers are often into pixel peeping. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't really know why that is, but I definitely think there's a connection. Like they're the first ones to experiment with panoramic stitching and, making super high-res HDR. But that is a type of landscape photographer that is looking to make a 10-foot by 10-foot print on their wall. And there are definitely Instagram landscape photographers that are 
extremely successful and their work is admired by many and I, I'm envious of their skill. They do really incredible work. I think, I think that if you're going to put the effort in to hike out to these places that you should put the little bit of effort in to bring a real camera, you definitely will have much nicer photos out of something that just at least shoots raw um, to get the extra dynamic range. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be an expensive camera. I mean, I think any SLR or mirrorless, like in the Canons, there's like the Rebel SL1. It's very affordable. But it would it would stand out as a better photo, even at full screen resolution, than an iPhone. Like at full screen on a laptop, you would see the difference. Mm-hmm. And I think that would be worth it if you're already putting all the effort into the hike. But you don't need a heavy lens. I mean, I think you can kind of go with anything, really. Even like the kit lenses would be very versatile. Like the 17 to 55 is one that comes with Canons. Yeah, um, same with Nikon. Yeah, it'll probably look very similar to iPhone lens quality. Um, but you'll have more resolution. You'll have a bit more latitude. You could do more in post. Mm-hmm. You, you can fix white balance just being a simple example. You know, if you get the white balance a little bit off on the iPhone, adjusting that JPEG is going to destroy it a lot more than if you're using a real camera. Um, and then, of course, there's just all the mirrorless cam- options that I don't know that much about. Mm-hmm. I know that everybody that uses Olympus these days really loves it. Um, the Sony A7 II, so not the R, uh, is much more affordable and mm-hmm. it looks great. Kind of anything, you know, pick, and those pick Olympus your, uh, kits or compact. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're very small. Yeah. Um, Panasonic also has some really great smaller options. So yeah. you can spend around $1,000, get something super lightweight, and th- that's what my recommendation was. I'm going to, I think we should get everybody to follow up and look at the show notes at stallman.com slash cameras or whatever. This is episode 36. And we're going to have a detailed list there. So we're kind of working through our plan as we talk. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should have written it first. But this is us <laughs> discovering our kits. And we'll put together finalized breakdowns on the website. You know, I think that... So there's the thing that I... Sorry, can I change gears? Of course. All right. So there's a thing that, that I've been um, working on or trying to work on this last week. And that's... Uh, Going back to an earlier conversation that we had on the show uh, with, I believe it was Kirk Maston, but we talked about restraining yourself and giving yourself less to, less to work with, and, and trying to see what you how it changes the way that you might approach any given uh, experience with shooting. Um, I think that with a lot of the things that we've been talking about today, up until the landscape part, um, you kind of need a lot of versatility with events and with people's studios portraits, that kind of stuff you need, you do oftentimes really need those zoom lenses. Um, you need several options to, to, in order to get the shot that is needed rather than just something that might be really cool and desired. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to change the the entire direction and, and talk about those restraints. Cause uh, this past week, just being, um, you know, Thanksgiving and, and being with the in-laws and, you know, not really having anything to do except for to drink beer. It was kind of that moment where it's like, um, okay, I'm going to take one or two cameras <laughs> and I'm going to see if I can maybe do a walk around and just shoot with one. Um, something I've been struggling with for the past year since I've been collecting these different film cameras 
And um, I, I recognize that there are moments where I'm having an argument with my argument with myself about whether or not I want to use this camera, that camera, or that camera, because I brought three of them. And you know, it's just kind of it, it ends up taking up more of my time than I want, and it also adds weight to the bag. Uh, it's just not necessarily making it a more pleasurable experience. So this past week, what I did is I mostly just walked around with my Yashica mat, and uh, and I only took um, Ilford HP5. And I managed to shoot two whole rolls just with that combination. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I carried around my light meter with me as well, just to, to I would experiment more with that. And uh, you know, it made me think a lot more about the limitations and also the strengths of that particular camera, as well as the film that I was using in it. And man, what a what a cool exercise! Like I feel like the the shots I I feel like I got, I got some great shots, but I you know I don't think there there's anything award winning about them. But there was the the exercise in itself was very satisfying, and I, I definitely recommend it to anybody that feels like they're bored or if they're if you're getting kind of stuck in a rut and you need a different way of of thinking about how you want to approach your photography. Uh, this is just it's it's a wonderful exercise, and you can you can really kind of focus in on on certain things that you might otherwise have ignored. Just as a as an example, and I'll I'll provide some examples so that you can show them later, Tyler. Um, I'm walking around in in the in laws neighborhood, and there's there's literally nothing. It's it's, uh, it's void of excitement. And you know, I walked over to the playground and just ended up seeing you know like a, this old basketball hoop. I've I've engaged with it before with a camera <laughs> just because it's like there's nothing, man. This is right. like barren wasteland. <laughs> is this like suburb wasteland or what, what um, am I it's, picturing? It's here? like farmland. It's it's oh. I mean it's it's rural for New Jersey, if you <laughs> if you will. So I mean it's it's not like it's it's not far. Like, you know, it's about fifteen or twenty minutes away from Trenton. Um but it's uh you know, I mean they're literally it's we're surrounded by farms and fields and and forest. So um there's not a lot to look at, but the, re- the how I made myself entertained in this situation, um, I have a, a yellow filter that I also brought, and it, I talked about it last time. Yeah, in that that photo of the leaves that is in show notes, if anybody missed it. Yeah, and so like I really just enjoyed the way that um, it it brings out the skin tones, it makes them a little bit brighter. Um, it, it emphasizes the the difference in color of the leaves. Um, so I mean, this is all like photography one on one stuff, but. Uh, I think that these days a lot of people skip that, and they don't really have that 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 um, that knowledge. I skipped one hundred and one. <laughs> I mean, I've never I've never used a filter. I'm aware of them, but I I definitely think you should be pushing us to it because yeah, it's a great idea. Yeah, and I think that you know, no matter how far you get, you know, in your in your either your craft or your profession, however it is that you that you view this. Um, I think that it's it's always helpful to take a to take a step back and and kind of go back to certain basics that you might have either skipped through, you know, maybe you touched on it, but maybe you didn't really invest. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the things that have been on my mind is because I've been using this film toaster and, and experimenting um, with that. Like my whole thought is, how can I get the absolute most out of a black and white negative? And very much thinking in terms of using the zone system and also using colored uh, contrast filters to be able to get you know certain aspects of my photos to 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 really pop out. And uh, it was a really fun exercise, and I'm really 
happy with a couple of the shots. I just think that they turned out so good. And, and it's funny because it's exactly the kind of subject matter that just feels really mundane and useless. Right. <laughs> you know, like I can't, you know, I, I, I probably will upload them to Stocksy, but I, it, it's just for something for yourself. Cool something cool to look at sure you know i mean it's possible that 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 a client might want something like that but it's not very likely um it doesn't make mean that you know it's not worthwhile from from that perspective it it sounds kind of like an exercise when you go on like a photo walk Mm -hmm. exactly i mean it's i think it's a really and and that's actually a really great way to to change how you're thinking about doing this is that if you consider i know that in um in photography education, something that's often used, and it's an Ansel Adams thing, but um, is pre-visualization. You know, so if you if you kind of think about whatever, if you don't have like a, a specific mission, if you don't have a job, and you're just going to do a walk around, give yourself a mission, give yourself that job, and decide like, okay, so I, what? Which lens am I bad at? Which one am I? Have I not really explored? Or, you know, let's talk about um, a kind of sideline idea that's been in my mind when I went out to shoot this past, this past week is that um, the whole idea of shoot, shooting either wide open or close to wide open all the time. It's really great for portraits, but outside of that, it really has to make sense for the photo or else it just looks like another no-depth photo of a leaf or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I mean, not that it can't be done nicely. It's just, it, it's done all the time and it becomes pretty lame after a while. So I was also trying like hell to use this yellow filter, which knocks, a, a, you know, one stop of exposure off. And so what, that's another reason I was carrying around a meter. But you also, you know, you have to think about that. You know, you have to consider like, how is this going to change my exposure? Well, I'm going to tie this back into the analogy I was making last time of Tom Morello um, for any Rage Against the Machine fans out there. That he has virtually no gear, just basically a simple distortion pedal going into a really loud amp and a wah pedal in between. And the yellow filter, is sound, to me, sounds like the wah pedal. Like it's mm-hmm. kind of a weird choice. It's like a random thing to throw in there that isn't commonly used, but it's like the, the wild card that the can kind of give you some fresh inspiration or a new direction to take what might otherwise be a you know, a photo that you wouldn't get excited about, but it gives you a new perspective on it. Yeah, I mean, and when you actually learn how these filters work, it's a, it's a subtractive process. So like whenever you think, you know, when you're looking at, at a scene and you're holding your yellow filter in your hand and you're like, hmm, I wonder how this translates. You know, everything that you see that's yellow-ish in tone is going to be brightened. And anything that you see that's the opposite of that color, so that would be in the blue ranges, those things are going to be darkened. And so you can really get some interesting stuff just in, in your, you're doing all this computation in your mind. You know, you don't get to change this after the fact, like with a digital image. Yeah. And so um, there's a satisfaction that comes with getting it right. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a really good thing. To, I think there'd be value even if you are shooting it digitally to go through this same process of try to predict what the photo is going to be before you take it. Mm-hmm. Don't just take it, you know, see what you got and then exactly. take another one. And, and that's why I think this exercise is, is worthwhile is because I think if you put yourself in that restrained position of having to do it the, the, the hard way, mm-hmm. the way that like there is no going back from it, it's what you get right. is what you got. Yeah. Tying um, yourself to the mast. Yeah, it compels you to think harder. 
because <laughs> you know otherwise your results are going to be lame, right? Or not what you expected, which yeah. could also be lame or could be awesome. But yeah. I like that. Yeah, yeah, and I, it's the same with uh, lens selection. I mean, the the yellow filter is kind of specific, but it, whatever you have currently, like people wind up in this situation most often because without thinking about it, because of phones now. So you have the restraint currently of whatever phone you own mm-hmm. that has a very specific lens with a really specific look that never changes. And every photo you take, I, I think it's worthwhile for people to start thinking about what is the lens that is on my phone? You know, what's the millimeter equivalent? So I can start getting used to like, oh, this is what a 28 millimeter looks like. Start getting familiar with what it's going to behave like. Try to observe the way that it distorts things in the corners. Try to think about the fact that it doesn't have much depth of field in, in, unless you're doing a macro. Like there's, there's going to be none. And think about those things before you use them instead of just falling into it and just mm-hmm. like taking all the photos without any thought and seeing what you get. The, that pre-planning, that pre-thinking with the, that camera that's already in your pocket I think can go a long way to teaching you lessons that you you know may may or not may not be thinking about. Yeah, and personally, I mean, I think that it, it might just be where I'm at in my life as a photographer is that you know, like I'm I'm kind of beyond the I'm way well, I'm well beyond the spray and pray. <laughs> yeah, like I don't have time to to even look at those photos. No, I know that's the worst because sometimes I've. <laughs> Sometimes I've done it just because I'm like, look, I don't know what I want here. I'm going to spray and pray this moment. And then later I always regret it. I always kick myself like, why do I have a hundred photos of this? <laughs> yeah. I should have just thought about it for a second. And Exactly. And, you know, that's, it just kind of, I don't know. There's just, it, it's more rewarding later down the road when you have an intention and mm. a vision and you actually complete it and, and do it to a point where it feels satisfactory and you're really happy with it. Oh, for sure. Uh, and you, another thing we've harped on before, but is the idea of pre-production and planning a shoot and doing something with you know, large intentions or large ambitions instead mm-hmm. of just walking in with a bag of props and uh, you know throwing them on a model or something. Yeah, and I mean, especially if you're creating work that that is intended to um, elicit a response from somebody other than yourself. You know, so if you're you know, if you're working for a client or if you're working for stock, you know, it's like you want to, you know, really consider all those things before you go and shoot. You know, it's not enough to just have some f- some food and throw it on a table and take pictures of it. You know, you have to go through extra lengths and, and really consider like what the surface looks like and and whether or not the 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 plateware and and silverware, whatever you're using for props, um Blends well not only with colors but also with context. Mm-hmm. You know, are you using you know a Mexican style plate with an Asian dish? Um, you know, like or, you know, is it just random? You know, these are things that that you know you really it, it goes a long way to pay attention to these little details. Well, a piece of advice I'm going to pluck out of this is that as your if the way that you're shooting today or tomorrow is in a mode that you want to learn from it. Like you're experimenting with the intent of um, having more information at the end of the day. Try to pick one or maybe two things that you're experimenting with, but not everything. You know, So don't walk in with a new camera, a new lens, a new lighting kit, and a new set of plates. 
of <laughs> cooking a dish for the first time, you know, um, cook a dish that you've cooked a thousand times and use a lens that you're very comfortable with, but then uh, play with the arrangement on the table. Mm-hmm. Or if you're shooting a portrait, um, just choose a new, uh, a new lens or a new aperture even and just focus on like, hey, what really changes as I shoot at 2.8 compared to 1.4 and move closer or further from my subject? How does the depth of field and nothing else, nothing but the exposure, nothing but the lighting, how does just the depth of field um, change and how is it affected as I make this one modification to my image? And just think about that one thing at a time and then look at the photos later and spend, spend a moment like really reflecting on like, how did this affect my image? Because you can't, you'll, you'll pick up the wrong lessons if you're looking at all at, at once. If you're switching between an 85 millimeter and a 50 millimeter lens and between 2.8 and 1.4, you're just going to get lost in the fog of all these different things that are all having very different effects on the photo. Yeah, exactly. So. Exactly. I don't know, all this stuff might be just uh, this. This is our one hundred and one episode. I feel like like uh, maybe we're just talking to a classroom of freshmen here, um, but I I need to be told, reminded this stuff all the time. Um, uh, absolutely. I mean, I think that it's easier for us to even, especially people that, like us who who work all the time. I think it's really really easy to kind of forget a lot of the fundamentals or or think that you know be I guess maybe arrogant. In and, your subconscious well, mind, and I think also not that you don't to, need to. I think not to take the time to teach yourself something new every once in a while as well. Yeah, to to think like, yeah, I've got my system, I've got my way, I do it. I'm just going to show up and do it that way, uh, without realizing that maybe something you're doing is stupid, <laughs> or right. that you know you just could do it better if you spend some time thinking about it. Yeah, exactly. How about some picks? Yeah. Uh, you got a you got a thing this week. What are you into? Uh, I have. Well, there are two things I'm into. The one, the the music thing that I've been doing. I've actually been listening to this record for about a month, but um, it's finally just it's it's uh, it's crept in, <laughs> so to speak. And it's uh, it's an it's a band I've been listening to for about a decade, and they're called Editors uh, from London, I believe, or at least the UK. The record is called In Dream. Uh, definitely recommend the deluxe version. I don't know why I recommend the deluxe version outside of that's the one that I have and that mm-hmm. it's very good. And it has a couple, I believe it just has a couple alternative songs or mixes of songs or stuff, something's different about them. Um, but man, it's just, it, it's really good. It just, it, it kind of re- reminds me of, uh, you know, kind of a um, modern rock 80s style. Ah, oh, just I'm really enjoying it. It's nice so, and warm and This full is what you're listening to when we were in the car together in New York, right? Yes, yes, exactly. And I really liked it immediately. It's yeah. easy to like. Yeah, and and the more that I've been listening to it cuz you know, sometimes with some records, you know, you can just you put it on and, and you listen to it and immediately you're like, yeah, this is something I'm going to like and I'm going to keep listening to it. But I find it's usually the records that I end up loving are the ones that that take a while to unravel. You know, and maybe the first couple times I listen listen to them, I don't immediately love it, but I can recognize that there's something intriguing about it. And then over time, as I start to learn, you know, the the you know where where the songs are going to take me, um, you know, it becomes more enjoyable and more enjoyable. And those are the ones that that years later I end up really loving. And I'm yeah. I'm kind of hoping that this is going to fit that that profile. I like that you said uh, that you pointed out their kind of 80s sound. The way that I first got into editors was by hearing a cover of 
Road to Nowhere by Talking Heads. Mm. And I love that cover. Like I've started to, uh, I, I'll even listen to the cover over the original sometimes. I mean, it's really great. So, I've never heard that. It's nice. It. Yeah, I should listen to it. Yeah, um, but yeah, I should get this album because I'm pretty sure I'm going to like it. Yeah, I think you would. Um, the other thing, I'm not sure that it's, uh, I'm, I'm not sure how it falls into picks, but I have completely fallen back in, into using the tone curve on everything in every way I can. Okay, explain. So, um, well, you know, I've been, I've been doing a lot of these self-scanning. So, um, you know, with, with doing it through the, um, the film toaster, it turns out that, that a lot of times the, the raw file is, it's, you know, there's a ton of information, but it's stretched pretty far. So you really do need to use the, uh, you need to practice using the tone curve a lot to get the kind of results that you want. Um, not just for contrast, but also for, for some color changes, um, using the red, green, and blue channels in there. Um, that's, which is something that, that you actually showed me. And, um, you know, so I've been using these all these methods quite a lot lately, and uh, then I I took your advice and and tried out that Lumenzia program mm-hmm. follow up. And, yeah, and the only thing that I've been able to really use it with so far is is curves. You know, so I pick the um, you know the 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 light mask that I want, and then I I plug in the curves and I I give it a go. Well, and for anybody that didn't listen to the last episode. Um, well, just go listen to it for one thing. But yeah, my pick was this plugin called Lumenzia that does luminosity masking. So it's like you choose the brightest or darkest or mid-tone part of the image and then um, affect it in some way. And, yeah. and you're saying curves has been the way that's most useful. Yeah, for me. Um, and I think that's just like it's becoming the way that I communicate with, you know, because I think that if I only had two things to use ever <laughs> within a, an editing program, the only two things that I would ever even really think about were, would be um, color, color correction and tone curve. Mm-hmm. You know, those those two things alone can really make the, all of the difference in your in your images. And it, it be, there's I don't think that there's really any point of moving beyond them until you've mastered them. Right. You know, um, I mean, I, I think that that, that that only applies to people who are going to go to a, a new depth in their photography, you know, and really well, need to tweak every little thing. But in, until you understand them, it's hard to really understand what your other sliders are doing, like what exposure does in Lightroom or what highlights does. Like, what does it really do? Like, the word might seem like it explains it, but it doesn't if you don't understand what a, a, a curve or a histogram or, you know, levels. If you don't know how those things work, Mm-hmm. You're not really tapping into um, the the real power of those other tools. So. Yeah, and minding your histogram. I think it's something that that I kind of took for granted for a long time. Like I know that like a lot of educators, I guess, be they actual university or school educators for or just internet educators, talk about histogram a lot. They talk about um, exposing to the right a lot. Um, you know, I think that just making sure that that your information falls within, you know, like a a, a nice zone in that histogram, uh, it just that should be all you really need because it tells you everything that you need to know. Yeah, if you only learn that, you'll go pretty far. Yeah, because I mean, if you're if you're trying to decipher what you have on, on your when you take a shot on your camera and you and you as a raw file and you 
you're looking at the at the you're doing a, a pixel peeping. <laughs> Um, all you can see is is a is a replication of an image. You're not really seeing all the information that's that's possible. Mm-hmm. And so it's way better to look at the histogram. It really is way better to look at the histogram yep. and know how far you can stretch it. And then the next thing I would I would recommend to anybody is that before you start to play with your highlights, shadows, whites, or blacks, and especially clarity, play with your exposure a little bit. Make sure the histogram's in a, in a place where it seems like it's not clipping and it's uh, spread wide and, and, and deep. And then go into the tone curve and make those, whatever those, those impulses that you were thinking, as, like you were thinking maybe, man, I really need to push the blacks or I need to uh, drop the highlights. Try doing that stuff with the tone curve first and get it to a place where it seems where it's really nice and then go in and use the highlight shadow white and blacks to do minor tweaks after that and i think that you can get a lot farther with getting the kind of contrasts that you want i completely agree with everything you're saying i want to also mention just a little follow-up on the lumenzia thing um a comment on facebook i wanted to mention was that there is also something from tony kapoor and it is luminosity panels that i believe predate lumenzia and the nathaniel pointed that out and uh, yeah, so just Google TK Actions Panel and you'll find it. It seems to be quite similar. Um, I'm going to oh, stick okay. with the ones I already spent money on, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> right. w- worth knowing about both. Uh, you can c- compare them before you make your choice. So These look to be quite a bit more complex. Yeah, well, I, I'm guessing that they perform very similar functions. Just glancing at them, it seems mostly the same, but organized differently in a way that there are many more buttons. It is... Uh, yeah, it looks it looks more complicated. I think it does similar things, but uh, both of them kind of have interface problems that they are not super clear how they work at uh, first glance. So, uh, read the instructions to see why these are useful to you. Hmm, cool. Uh, my stuff this week. I got a few, I got a few little things. Um, first is a fun one that is from called a uh, company called Fiction Brand, and they make kind of geek and especially camera geek related t-shirts. So the one that I got the other day is just a black t-shirt that has the focus range markings of a Leica on it. And it's really simple and it's cool and it's nerdy and I like it. Nice. Um, so yeah, ca- camera swag that is nice looking. And it's uh, Christmas time too. Oh yeah. Okay. There you go. So gift guide. Um, and actually I'm going to make a little plug for, a gift guide for my blog I've been working on that I think I did a pretty good job of, and it's got some camera stuff in there too. So by the time this podcast is posted, it should be live. And uh, if you just go to stallman.com slash blog, uh, you'll see it there. Cool. I'll check that out. I've actually, I've I've been having to look for some ideas for myself because... Well, these are all going to be gifts for yourself because they're all meant for uh, guys that have exactly the interest I do. But um, Right. But you know, maybe there's something that you want that that would relate as well. Yeah, gifts gifts for me. This is everybody's guide to buying gifts for me. <laughs> Although you would probably like everything on it too, right? If you're like either of us. Um, so uh, another pick that was uh, I was really enjoying the Beta Band. Oh, yeah. um, if you remember the Beta Band from uh, a while ago, uh, the three EPs was playing when I was at that event shooting. Uh, dinner the other night and I was just remembering that it is a great album and um, 
yeah, go give it a re-listen or enjoy it for the first time if you haven't before. Uh, I, I was introduced to it probably the way a lot of people were with a great scene in High Fidelity. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, if you remember that, so I don't remember that, but I, I remember that that song. I remember it being attached to that, but I, I don't remember the scene. Yeah, it's. I uh, should Google it. I'll maybe I'll include the YouTube video in the show notes. I was, but, I was a big fan of Hot Shots too, though. That record, oh, Bait Band record. Yeah, yeah. There's all, all of them. Just check out all their records. They're fantastic. I don't know if they're still around. Are they? I really doubt it. I think yeah. they stopped making records quite a long time ago. It's maybe been a while. ten or more years ago. <laughs> all right. Well, flashback in time. And uh, then the other thing, this isn't a pick because I don't know if any podcasters listen to this, but I like gear. So I'm going to just talk about gear. (laughs) I needed to replace my preamps. Well, my audio interface, I should say, my in and out device to the computer that we record this with because I was using an Mbox that was made by Avid. Um, So Avid does uh, video software and hardware that and that's all they do now they dropped their m audio division and sold it off spun it off into a new company now this new company has stopped fully supporting the avid versions of their hardware which means that once i upgraded my computers to yosemite i couldn't use my device anymore so i went searching for a new in-out device and i came upon Focusrite, which cameron uh, that's what you use right that's exactly what I use, yeah. Yeah, it's what everybody was recommending. It seems to be the best option at the price point. I went with the 6i6, which has six ins and six outs. The main reason wasn't because I need six ins and outs. Um, it still only has two mic preamps, which is fine with me, but it has a lot more gain in the preamps. And the mic that I'm using, the Heil PR40, is very gain-hungry, so it, it can use that. And it also has two headphone outputs, which was constantly a problem when we have guests, which we haven't done in too long. But when somebody else was in the room with me, I would have to find a headphone splitter, which would always have issues. But this does um, internal multiple headphones with their own output levels on each one. So I'm excited to uh, to do that as soon as we have another guest in. That's awesome. Yeah, so... Yeah. Totally recommend the Focusrite products. Yeah, it'd be very affordable. Like the small ones, the Solos, are like $150 or something, 100 bucks. It's really amazing prices for what you're getting out of these. And, and this one was 350 and it, it does a lot. So Sounds great. Go buy that if you're going to podcast. Yeah, yeah, which you should. Everybody should podcast. Everybody needs a podcast. <laughs> um, by the way, I, I know we're wrapping this up, but I just sent you a, a version of a file that was, I just did some raw tweaking on it in Lightroom, and then I took it into Lumenzia and did some t- some action on it, and then oh, brought it back into Lightroom and did a couple, I had to do some uh, some color tweaking because it the Lumenzia tended to oversaturate things. And kind of make them a little bit um, HDR, right? And uh, and that's all about like getting really comfortable with the tool, which I'm not yet, but okay. I yeah, hope exactly. To but this is my first real attempt at, at, at giving it a go. And I, the one thing I want to note is that how it separated the, um, and I guess we can show this in the show notes so people know what we're talking about. But um, it separated the the details in the in the the brush that's that's closest to the lens. Mm-hmm. Um, not just the color, but also just the, the contrast, and and it, it appears that the sharpness. But I didn't actually do any sharpening at all. Hmm. 
And Oops. I actually did, hold on one second. I yeah. did negative 15 on the clarity on that shot. Hmm. But, and that's the difference between the two. Yeah. So make sure to send me the high res version of each of these with a description of what you did. And I'm going to include that in show notes. Um, and again, that's uh, stallman.com slash cameras or whatever slash 36 are the notes for this episode. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, so thanks a lot, Cameron. Yeah, thank you. Good talk.